Magazine. This is his website, in case you don't know how to look through the description. <laughs> so how has your day been? We'll start like that. It's wonderful. Brett Keen is... <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Back on the scene, uh, 3.0. So it's um, I'm real excited to see you active on YouTube, my friend. And I'm excited about the things that God will do with our do with us here. Well, I appreciate it. Why don't you tell the folks what your theological position is, how you see yourself? Yeah, I consider myself an apostolic Unitarian, which is um, someone who has a Unitarian understanding of theology, that there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And there's one Lord Jesus Christ through whom we exist, that is, through whom we have access to salvation. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's consistent with um, the monotheism of the Old Testament, of the, of the Tanakh. And uh, my understanding is Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one whom all the prophets spoke about. He's the one through which we, uh, an everlasting kingdom will be established. And uh, he's the one by which we receive salvation. God has made him, uh, put him in a place of uh, mediation. Uh, whereas it says in First uh, Timothy 2, 5 through 6, there's one God, the Father, and um, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So there's one God who is God, and there's one mediator between God and man, um, the Messiah, who is Jesus and so Jesus has been exalted to God's right hand to basically accomplish God's um, marvelous master plan for creation and salvation. And what this life is, it's really a test. You know, God is trying to reap a harvest, and we all have access to an inheritance to becoming to become children of God. And so God is calling us to to receive the gospel and to believe, so that we may have adoption as as sons. And, uh, and, and that, that the whole master plan for salvation is facilitated and accomplished through the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ. So, yeah, I believe um, I, I'm apostolic also in the sense that I follow the, the gospel of Acts. That is, Acts, um, the gospel according to the book of Acts, which is what the apostles themselves emphasized as the key core elements of, of the of the message of, of the good news. And so the apostles believed in an active living faith. They preached repentance. They preached um, baptism in Jesus' name, and they preached being filled with the Holy Spirit and the gift of the Spirit. And so my ministry is the combination of um, three three primary things, the motivation to love, the um, God loved us and we should, we should love each other and we should have fellowship with each other to edify each other and encourage each other. Uh, so our motivation should always be grounded in love um, and also truth. We need, to, we need to have a correct understanding um, based on a ba the balanced testimony of Scripture of what the gospel is, what our hope is, uh, who God is, who the Messiah is, and so truth is very important. And then the, the third aspect is the spirit. We need to be operating under the influence of God, uh, being filled with his, his renewing um, spirit that transforms us and, and, and um, changes our heart as well as 
um, our understanding. So yeah, that's the main crux of, of what I stand for. My ministry is for the restoration of first century apostolic Christianity. And so it's to get beyond the traditions of men and go back to um, the core gospel as the apostles preached it. How do you, what do you see between the difference between modern day preaching, sermons, text, uh, dictation over that of the past? What are some of the things that, that kind of ride you a little cold about what's going on in our modern day? Yeah, I mean, there's all these extra biblical schools of thoughts and sects and um, theories. And, and these theories, you know, could be based on sort of a, a narrow interpretation of like one or two verses in which you're, you're reinterpreting the whole gospel, the whole New Testament, based on this theological paradigm that's based on a, a real um, narrow interpretation of a couple of verses. So it's, it's extremely important to, to take a balanced view of the scripture and not fixate so much on on one verse but look at everything in balance and so i think what happens is there's all these um you know there, there's all these denominations and sects and they all have their own doctrines and they emphasize their doctrine at the expense of just the basic um um, call to believe in the core elements of the gospel, which is that Jesus died for our sins, that he he was raised from the dead, and in the likeness that Jesus was raised from the dead, we have the hope of the resurrection. Uh, he's the firstborn of many brethren. And so Jesus is the model for us and how we should live. So it's not so much about what we know, like whether we're theologically, you know, there's any misconceptions theologically. It's really the condition of our heart and the desire to follow God and, and um, turn away from the world, turn away from sin, and to, to be led by the Spirit of God. Um, for, for as many as who are led by the Spirit of God, these are, these are the sons of God. Um, so, yeah, um, doctrine is important, but um, there's a lot of division, and people emphasize, you know, their doctrines over over really having the heart, the heart of Christ. And so that's kind of uh, discouraging, but what I'm trying to do is stand for something a little bit more consistent with, with what Jesus and, and the apostles um, promoted. Do you think that the divisiveness that goes on nowadays is because of e uh, ego and deliberate intention, or is it out of ignorance? Well, yeah, there's the pride of life, there's the lust of the flesh, and then there's the lust of the eyes, which are like the three sort of things that people fall into. And it's pride is such a strong force. Like we're in this competition in life to like prove something and establish ourselves over other people. And so, you know, the unwillingness to change, even though there's evidence that you're an heir, is you know it goes to pride you know i don't want to i don't want to admit that i was wrong i don't want to admit that i had the wrong ideas and so pride is a, a definite hurdle and impediment to um coming to a greater understanding and acceptance of the truth um and also people are motivated by pride it's like i can establish my identity and my self-esteem based on how i can argue and debate and contend with other christians and it becomes more of like it's more about my own 
building up myself than really um, advancing the kingdom of God. And so people have the wrong motivations when they go into ministry. They say they're serving God, but they're actually serving themselves and their own idea of how they're, you know, they have the right, the correct doctrine and, and things like that. And then there's others who just engage in endless debates and quarreling just because it's, um, it's like mental masturbation. It's like entertainment. They just, they want to, they want to have some sort of provocative um, doctrine or a doctrine that, you know, they don't care about how provocative they are. They just, they just enjoy fighting and contending and um, because it's, it's intellectually stimulating. And so, yeah, there's all these motivations for, which are really not the correct motivations for, for having a ministry and, and engaging in ministry. Our, our motivation should really help to, to help a dying world to reach out into the darkness and bring the light to, to people who are, um, who are just so disillusioned with this world, so frustrated with life in a state of depression or fear or anxiety in a state of hopelessness in a state of addiction. And, uh, um, yeah, all those things that we're trapped into, like we can, we can have freedom from that, uh, through the gospel. And that, and that should be our, our focus to help, help those who are lost, uh, not to just, you know, show off and <laughs> make a name for yourself just for the sake of making a name for yourself. You've said that uh, there are Christians out there who enjoy arguing with you and they do it what appears to be out of boredom just so they can have their entertainment instead of actually trying to save someone or assist someone. If you don't mind me asking, what is the difference between a Unitarian, oneness believer, and a Trinitarian? And where do you fall in and why do you think that there's uh, some division for others, at least in their perception? Sure. Um, yeah, there's different theological categoriz categorizations, um, Trinitarian, Unitarian, uh, Oneness or Modalists, Arian, and um, you can also say like um, um, others like Binitarian or Gnostic, but those are, are really uncommon. Uh, so a Trinitarian, most people know what that is. It's this doctrine that was... Um, basically codified in these councils, uh, the Council of Nicaea, the Council uh, of, of uh, the Athanasian Creed of, of, of 381. Um, and these are, these are attempts to use basically Greek philosophy to describe um, this sort of imposition that um, Jesus is fully God in his, his ontology of, equal and co-eternal, co-equal and co-eternal with, with the Father. Um, and so it's, it's, um, it's kind of a digression of like over four centuries of this, um, of one thing leading to another and then having to have sort of a philosophical framework of describing God in a way that sort of, um, you know, makes things that are apparently contradictory, like to try and um, explain that, which it, it doesn't do a good job of doing actually. Um, but um, yes, a Trinitarian would say um, God is three persons, but one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
A modalist would say that God is not three persons. There's no not three centers of consciousness, but there's one person who is God, and that Jesus is the Father himself. And so modalism or oneness gets kind of weird because Jesus is sort of like an avatar of God in which he's basically praying to himself. And it's all like stage play where basically, you know, Jesus appears to be tempted. He appears to pray to himself. He appears to, to be weak. Um, but it's, you know, Jesus is literally God the Father, you know, in, in, in the embodiment of a man. And so there's no personal distinction between the Father and, and Christ uh, in the modalist way of thinking. Um, a Unitarian says um, there's only one God, the Father, and Jesus is the Messiah. Um, and the main um, distinction is, like, in all these beliefs, the main issue is Christology. It's who is Jesus, what is Jesus ontologically. And so all the, all these uh, um, theological frameworks, they say Jesus is God in some sense. The Unitarian says Jesus is God in a sense that he's God's agent, he's God's representative. By virtue of the divine power and authority he's been given, he's been put at the right hand of God to, to judge the world and, and to rule in a, in a kingdom that will be established. So as an agent of God, you know, agents of God can be called God. In the Old Testament, they're called God. Even, even Jesus himself said uh, they were called God to whom the word of God came, and Scripture can't be broken or disregarded. Um, so when Jesus said, I am the Father of one, he's saying it in that sense, that I am God's agent, I speak his, his words, I do his will, I'm, I'm a perfect servant of God, I'm, I'm fully... Um, in line with God's will and God's intentions. And so, like, in the Old Testament, the angels of Yahweh were actually um, referred to as Yahweh himself, according to the concept of agency. Like, if you're God's spokesperson or messenger, you're, you're treated as if you're God in that sense, because um, according to the concept of agency, the person acting on behalf of, of the principal uh, is regarded as the principle himself, even though he's not in a literal sense. Um, and so Jesus is the agent of the Most High. He's the one who God raised up as his servant uh, to accomplish his will. And Jesus can be called God because agents of God can be called God because of his association and, um, and the authority God has given him. It says Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power, and one about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And it's through the Holy Spirit, through the empowerment of the anointing, that God was with him and, and accomplished all these great signs. And so, like, Jesus is definitely associated with God. He's the agent of God, and he's God by proxy, but not in a literal ontological sense. There's only one God, the Father, who's literally God in, in a strict sense. And so when we read in First. Uh, uh, Corinthians 8 5 through 6 although there are so many uh, so there are many so-called gods and many so-called lords to us there is one God the Father uh, the source of all things and there's one Lord Jesus Christ um, who we have salvation through through whom all things exist and so in in a strict sense in the category of God it's just the Father the the, the Creator the source of all things in the category of Lord 
Jesus has been made both Lord and Christ, as it says in Acts 2.36. Uh, God has made him both Lord and Christ. So Jesus is standing in the place of, of, of divine authority as our Lord, but in a strict sense, in an ontological sense, there's only one God, the Father. So that's the distinction. I don't have a problem with calling Jesus God, and that's in the sense that he's God's agent, he's God's representative. Um, but um, we know that in a, in a strict ontological sense, there's only one God, the Father. Um, and Jesus is acting according to his his intentions and his um, his plan. Now, a, a modalist would say, "Well, how would you describe the Holy Spirit and um, and Jesus, or the Word?" You know, you have this thing in First John five seven. There are three three things in heaven that bear witness: the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And so, a modalist would say that these three are aspects of God or modes of God not literally persons. Um, and so in the sense, I agree with that, um, that the Holy Spirit is the aspect of God which pertains to God's controlling influence. It's always through the Holy Spirit that God interacts with man, that God brings things into existence. It's God's controlling influence. It's his power. Uh, the Logos is the wisdom of God. That pertains to the, the, the aspect of God's thinking, his mind, his intentions, his, his logic, his reasoning. And then the Father himself is the, the person of God. It's God in his being, his ontology. And so all these three concepts, like the Logos and, and uh, the prologue of John, is God because God's thoughts are God. You know, God's wisdom is God. But it's not a person beside God. It's an attribute of God which is divine through which all things come into existence. And so the, I take like that, that perspective when it comes to uh, the word logos and the Holy Spirit, which is God's controlling influence. Now, a lot of people make the mistake to say, well, isn't Jesus the logos? Like the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Um, and yes, um, Jesus is the pinnacle, the center of God's plan and purpose for creation and for salvation. So Jesus is the fullest, fullest embodiment of God's plan and his, his intentions. And in that sense, he's, he's the word. But the word itself is literally God's wisdom. And God's wisdom existed before all things were brought into existence. And in the fullness of time, through God's wisdom, Jesus was made manifest. And so Jesus is a, um, came into existence when the word was made flesh. It's basically God, when God spoke, all things were made, right? It says in Genesis, God spoke and there was light. God spoke and the animals were, were made. And so when God speaks, things come into existence, and, and the word being made flesh is God speaking Jesus into existence according to his wisdom and his plan, his intentions. And so these, these truths get lost because there's a just you know a lot of um, confusion and uh, mis misinterpretation of, of what it says in the prologue of John and other places. But if you look at things in a balanced way, you'll come up with a, a Unitarian understanding that, that Jesus is the Messiah. If you read the book of Acts, what the apostles preached, they weren't preaching some complicated philosophical um, you know, theory. They were preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. 
That's all there was to it. That's all they needed to. That's the only message they really need to communicate, that Jesus is the one all the prophets bore witness to. Um, not that he's um, a third person of a trinity. Um, so um, I used to be a modalist years ago, and before I was a modalist, I was a Trinitarian. But uh, for the past 20 years or so, I, I've like come to the understanding that um, <laughs> there's only one God, who, one person who is God, and Jesus is distinct from God, although he's an agent of God. There's an association, but in terms of his personal identity and um, being, there's an ontological distinction. Um, and if you conflate um, Jesus with God in an ontological sense, what you do is you bring God down to the level of man, and then you you bring man up to, to the level of God, and you blur the distinction. And so it's it's absolutely critical that our our the Lamb of God be a man like us. Um, in, comp in, in his ontology and his being, um, he's he's considered our faithful high priest, and to to be able to mediate and relate to our weaknesses, he had to, you know, we need a high priest who is fully human, in every sense of what that means. Um, it says he learned obedience from what he, he suffered in Hebrews um, chapter five. You know, God doesn't learn obedience. People learn obedience. And and Jesus um, submitted himself and was tested and tempted, but yet was obedient even to death on a cross. And it says in Philippians 2, for that reason God exalted him um, and gave him an, a name above every other name, authority above every other authority, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of you know, Jesus is Christ Messiah, a Lord Messiah to the glory of a Father God. Um, and so Jesus was made Lord because he proved himself obedient and worthy to be trusted, entrusted with, with this authority. Um, and, th and that's the testimony of the gospel. Like um, the Messiah has come and our hope is in the Messiah and uh, we confess him as Lord. God made him both Lord and Christ. And there's no other name among men given by which we mu must be saved. Um, so, so my testimony of the Gospels not, doesn't deviate at all from what the apostles preached in the book of Acts. And um, those are the core elements by which we are saved. Um, does, that, does that make sense? Right. Well, you went quite in depth on uh, the relationship between Jesus and God. If you don't mind me bringing in a few other figures, I've listened to many, many different denominations and uh, Christian videos and all that. And some people have some really odd ideas on their how they see the relationship between God and the devil. Some people see the devil as another personality. Some people see him as distinctive. Uh, some people say he's in hell. Some people say he's roaming the earth, going to and fro. What is Satan's relationship to God? What is How do you see his origin story and how it plays out in the end? And what is he doing presently? Go ahead. Take your time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a tricky one. I can ramble on uh, about this for a while. Um, so Satan, I enjoy, I enjoy listening to you. You go into whatever you feel you need to. 
Yeah, without getting too much into like demonology and and um, the basic things that we should think about when we think about Satan or any other being or principality that is in opposition to God is that the um, the reality that we have free will and that the agents of God can also choose to obey and disobey. The logical consequence of that freedom is that you have, if you have free will, you also have the choice to disobey. And so it's only um, only logical that there would be entities and beings which came into existence and were given free will and rebelled against God and are, are now like hostile and, and in opposition to the, the good things of God and, and his kingdom. And so Satan, you know, there's different names in different religions and but there's there's the constant theme of like basically the 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 principality or the 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 king of of darkness the one who like because normally everything in in the in in the universe in terms of like logical beings in, in civilizations and, and and groups of of entities they always form some sort sort of hierarchy and so if you're going to have all these rebelling entities and, and spirits and whatnot that um, there's going to be a hierarchy and there's going to be someone in command of them and that's that's satan uh, or the devil um and so there's multiple there's different names for for satan but the idea of satan is perfectly consistent with the understanding that this universe um has agents in it that can choose you know, free agency where you can choose between good and evil. Um, and so, you know, there's different different theories and beliefs about how Satan fell and, you know, rebelled against God and if there was some war. Uh, I don't really get too far into that stuff, but um, the general idea that demons exist, that, you know, angels of evil exist, is, is pretty obvious, especially if you've you've seen um, the darkness in this world manifest in um, very strong and uh, compelling ways. You know that that evil exists, the demons exist, and part of Jesus's ministry, in large part, was casting out demons. The apostles casted out demons, and so it's it's a reality that a lot of people who are just kind of sheltered and live behind their computer screen don't really necessarily acknowledge but you know if you go out and, and you you kind of see um see what can happen in real life then it's it's pretty uh pretty compelling that demons exist um so yeah that's kind of where i'd go with that um you know, it says that we we struggle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and heavenly places. You know, in this invisible world, there's a spiritual warfare that's taking place, and these spirits will try and influence influence us and take us away from the truth, take us away from um, pursuing God, and so it's a battle. Uh, it's a spiritual battle that we face, and so as we come into the light there's a, a process of sanctification and of deliverance from the influence of, of these spirits. And, uh, 
you know, that's what deliverance is all about. It's like you're afflicted with this, um, the spirit. And some, you know, there's different levels of being afflicted or possessed. Some people more than others, but the ultimate goal is to, to completely break free and be delivered from, from these influences. Just as the Holy Spirit is the influence of God, all these evil spirits are um, the influence of, of dark powers, of demonic um, powers that are in opposition to God's goodness. My next question for you is, do you see yourself as a compatibilist? Are you uh, all for free will? Or do you think some things are predetermined or all things? Being that God has the attribute of knowing all things, where do you stand on that? These are all great questions. Um, so the question is, is the future reality? Is the past reality or is only the present reality? That's one way you can sort of tackle this question. Like if the future has multiple possibilities, it's not reality until one of those possibilities comes and materializes. And so I take the approach that um, God plans the future and God controls the future, but there's some element of uncertainty of, of, uh, in, in the universe. You know, just as like in quantum mechanics, we, there's a probability function to describe, um, like a subatomic particle, what is its position as, a, as opposed to its momentum. And you can only express um, that in terms of a probability distribution. It, it's not an exact known thing. And it doesn't really become what it is until it, 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 uh, it manifests. And in, this, in a similar sense, there's sort of a, a randomness element of, of this world. That's not to say that God can't control the future and determine the future. It's to say that, you know, like the whole element that we have free will, that's a, that's that per, that in, um, imposes um, randomness because our choices are, you know, we have the potential to do one thing or the other. And people aren't always all that predictable. Um, so anyways, that's kind of... A long way of saying that um, God, God can always intercede in the universe to accomplish His will, but it can happen within the framework that there's some level of uncertainty and randomness. And so, like where it says God predestined certain things, like God predetermined the whole framework for salvation. So God established from the beginning that there would be that those who would receive the gospel would be saved and those who would reject would be condemned. But not, that doesn't necessarily mean that God predetermined specifically who would be condemned and who would be saved. Just that the, there was this category of people who would believe and this category of people who would be condemned based on the, their decisions and their actions of whether they receive or reject, you know, God's revelation. And so, like, predestination is like this kingdom that God planned, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like, Jesus preexisted in that sense of a, a prophetic sense, like the prophets could see the future. But the future is materialized because God controls the future. 
um, God can always intercede and intervene in the course of events to to accomplish his his intentions. It doesn't mean that there's no randomness at all in in our our decisions or in the outcome of events. It's just God can always take control and assert his will over over everything else. So I take this view of sort of um, the reality, like God knows all things that can be known or that are known. Um, God knows the future in the sense that he determined, He has determined how the future will unfold and he controls the future. But like there's certain things that don't fall in, under the category of um, reality, right? The future isn't really reality until it, it's made manifest and comes into existence. Um, so God knows all real things. Like there's certain things that God doesn't know that are like illogical things in the sense that, um, like if you have some false theory, anything that's false is unknowable because it's it's false, right? And, um, so the idea that may I put something forward uh, along with the conversation? Sure. If uh, uh, most Christians agree that they are convinced that God actually lives outside of space, time, and matter in the constraints of the laws of this universe, being that He exists outside, this makes Him timeless, eternal, powerful enough to create life, sentience, the universe itself. The question is, if God is outside of time and we are experiencing existence linear, doesn't this mean that God not only lives in the present, but the past and the future all at the same time? Yeah. Um, where does it say that in the Bible? So, like, a lot of this stuff that has to do with... Um, compatibilist or incompatibilist, um, whether you're Calvinist or whatever, has to do with this presumption that God is the greatest um, ultimate thing you, you can possibly think about or theorize about. And um, when you go down that paradigm, you start just contemplating, well, for God to be the ultimate and best, God would have to know all things into the future and everything would have to be perfectly, fully knowable, like the the parallel potential of every potentiality, um, and it's like it's you're getting into philosophy of like, well, what's the greatest uh, thing I can conceive of in my imagination of what God is, and then that's your definition of God, as opposed to just looking at what the Bible says who God is, and going by that, you know, what it what does it say explicitly about God in the Bible, not what philosophically you can you can come up with as an idea of, of like the ultimate greatest uh, perception of what an all, all powerful being um, would, would, um, would be characterized with. And so like a lot of these apologists, they fall, they fall into more of a category of like a philosophical understanding of what the ultimate is rather than just what does the Bible say? All right, if it, if it would be better, I'll use an example from the Bible. Um, 
the book of Job, one of the most oldest uh, books uh, written in the Bible, it states that Satan and God had a conversation. Um, God actually uh, uh, participated in the concept of the devil coming down and uh, trying to do the devil's will against Job. Now, you do believe that God knew the outcome before this even started, right? And even knew that Satan was going to come to him and have the conversation even before it happened. Yeah, I believe God generally knows the outcome um, because God is, in his wisdom, can foresee that, like, I don't think God brought man into existence thinking that he would be perfectly obedient. Like, God knew that he would fall. He, he would disobey just by virtue of his His wisdom, his, able, his ability to predict, based on the nature of man, their limitations of... of uh, how they would screw up. So God, yeah, God generally can predict the future, but just because God can predict the future doesn't mean um, God controls us. We still have choices. We still have free will. So you would, I guess you would say that's compatibilism um, where God knows what we'll choose to decide, but like we, it's still our responsibility to to make the decision, and we're still held held accountable for the decisions we make. Um, but I don't think God brought anyone into existence with the the, the intention of, um, or at least, yeah, God doesn't just pick and choose ahead of time, um, or at least predetermine. Like your your destiny in terms of being condemned or being saved. Um, so yeah, and Job, yeah, you can make the argument that God knew. Like I, I would agree with that that God knew what Job would do ahead of time. I uh, I kind of personally have noticed a lot of people use the hallway with doors and many different routes concept. I kind of look at it the way a. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a gamer. And I see that this is literally a world created by a game developer with a storyline, goals, choices. And there's several different ways that you can succeed at it or just simply immerse yourself and uh, just continue to exist with it. Even though all things are known and everything's scripted down to the T, you still have choices as the avatar that goes to a developed world or simulation. Yeah, it's like choose your own adventure with multiple parallel universes that God knows every contingency of every contingency or, or like derivative of every derivative. Um, yeah, I think it, it kind of just leads you into a state of like there's there, not, everything is meaningless if like in one universe I choose to do good and another parallel universe I choose to do evil. Like, I think reality is only what happens, not what potentially can happen. It's, um, and to derive any sort of sense of like, like if in the gospel, Jesus was obedient even to death on a cross and in some other parallel universe, Jesus wasn't obedient um, and, and wasn't exalted to God's right hand, that would be like, 
you know, it would be like, well, there's just no, there's no moral, um, ethical compass or framework to understand good versus evil, what's right and wrong, if just everything happens simultaneously in every parallel universe. It's like, there's just no way to even perceive, like, to, to, to derive any, any knowledge, really, because everything just happens perpetually, randomly, simultaneously. Um, so it's, it's just like a lost um, theoretical framework or philosophical framework for thinking about things. Well, I, I wasn't talking. I, I like the fact you brought up parallel dimensions and universes and all that. I find that fascinating. But I was talking more about uh, a one-world system created by a game developer, and you're just simply given many different choices on how you want to exist or play your game throughout that. You could be a bad character, but that would be the reality that you chose to go through. And that you could also choose to be a good guy or goody two-shoes, as some noobs like to call it. <laughs> but it's still the same game. It's not a, a multi-dimensional thing. Same game, same developer. And in the end, it all ends the same for all the characters and NPCs, right? Yeah, it's true. We're in a game. Um, you can even say we're in a, a, a simulation. Like God has created this um, immersive world that we live in as we're beings and we're players, we're agents in life. And and God is seeing like what we're going to decide to do. And the way you win the game, you level up, is you you gain in revelation, understanding, you receive... Like you power up by receiving the Holy Spirit, uh, and you you win the game. Like you even have victory over death. Like, like you can respawn because in this life, if you're found in Christ and you die, you respawn in God's kingdom. Whereas, <laughs> if you die in this life and you're outside of God, you know God's grace, you're condemned. There's no respawning, or if there is a, a respawning, you're not going to like where you end up respawning. Um, and so like, don't, you, uh, yeah. don't you find it unusual that in our modern times, people can actually see the creation and development of an entire world and land and new characters and all these different things and choices of existence, but then they have a hard time believing that there may have been some intelligence trillions of years ago that could have developed something way far superior than anything that we see in gaming today. How, how can they even doubt a possibility of this? Yeah. And video game scenarios are a great thing and kind of laying out, like there's always a cause and effect. And like, if we know approximate cause, there's still the ultimate cause. Like you can still say, well, what's the cause of the cause and the cause of that cause and it always goes back, it, it always goes to a source, the initial cause, the, the primary cause. Um, and so going through a video game scenario helps you kind of think in, in those in that in those terms. Um, you know, we were talking about predestination and free will earlier. Have you ever played a game called The Sims before? Yeah, like way back when when uh my kids were little yeah 
Well, the, the reason why I bring it up, and I think you'll think this is uh, pretty interesting, it was along with the free will predestination. The game has it set up to whenever you create little characters to run around live in houses, you can actually see these little thought bubbles of what they're wanting to do or what they're inspiring to do or what they may actually do next. And, of course, there's all kinds of coding where they might change their mind and go do something completely different. But the point is, is you always know what they're going to do. You could actually sit back without even touching your mouse, and these things could live just fine without your help. They may tend to piss to bed every once in a while or, you know, do do themselves out on the front lawn, but they could survive. You see what I'm saying? So it's kind of like you got a predetermined world, an environment, but you can also know everything that's going to happen at the same time. Yeah. You, um, yeah, I just, the predetermined part of it is like, like God obviously allows evil to to occur like god doesn't intervene and intercede whenever someone's going to be murdered or raped or um there's all sorts of um terrible things that happen in this world that god doesn't always inter intervene with and it's like um so god takes a hands-off approach in some aspects of things like like this world is basically run um, under the, the influence of powers that propagate evil and God is giving us a hand or a lifeboat to escape this world as we see it, this dark, corrupted world. And uh, so God knows the future. God determines the future and at least the potential future that we have if we if we level up and we pass you know, it's like a vetting process. Like it's a harvest. If we bear good fruit, if we if we're found in Him, we're going to extend our our life and and inherit eternal life and level up and, and be part of His kingdom. Um, but there's all sorts of of dangers and snarls and traps and uh, that we're fighting through and we're being tested and we're being vetted and. God gives us multiple opportunities typically to to choose the the righteous path, but people don't choose it and they end up in a hell that they create for themselves. I don't know if that was totally responsive to what you were saying, but that's no, that's uh, cool. It's where cool. I went with it. <laughs> so why do you, uh, you had said that you were Trinitarian in the beginning and then you, I guess, a modalist or something like that. I don't know all the fancy names folks give themselves and all that. I, I must apologize for my ignorance. But why do you think you went through these, um, these three steps before you come to the walk you are now? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a process of growing growing in my understanding like and um coming coming to terms with the truth so growing up as a kid you know most of my influences going to church were trinitarian churches and that's just you just kind of by osmosis you identify that way even though you don't understand it 
So I, I would never say, I guess I was a Trinitarian in the sense that I fully understand it and, and embraced it um, other than just to say, there's these three concepts that I embrace. Like if you look at like the old Roman creed or the, um, what they call the apostles creed, it talks about the father, son, and Holy spirit. Like these are three concepts that are important to our understanding as Christians, but it doesn't say anything about them being co-equal and co-eternal. So like you're a Trinitarian in the sense that, yeah, I, I, I embrace the father. I embrace, you know, the son of God. I embrace the Holy spirit without these um, nuances and um, that are actually part of the the traditional Trinitarian creeds, and so like you can be a you can be a Unitarian with actually and actually think you're a Trinitarian just because you know you don't reject these basic concepts. You reject um, the philosophical framework that was determined or you know uh, expound you know expressed or you know codified by Neoplatonic Greek philosophers in the in the fourth century. So um, yeah, I grew up, you know, just going to Trinitarian churches and uh, in college, you know, ministries. They're you know the Trinitarian, um, and then I ended up getting involved with like a Oneness Pentecostal ministry, and um, we went through it, and it's like they convinced me the Trinity was unbiblical. Um, but the alternative that they had had issues. So it was helpful in, in basically taking one step outside of the Trinitarian box and saying, no, God is not three persons. God is one. And so the great thing about modalism is it it, it, it expresses God's oneness. It affirms God's oneness. Um, and it affirms the Holy Spirit being God's controlling influence um, and that these are these are aspects of God the logos being an aspect of God, but the 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 issue with the modalism again is that um, it doesn't make a distinction between the person of of Jesus, the Messiah, and the Father, the one God and Father, and so that's a big issue that really makes the scriptures extremely confusing. And so, um, after being involved with that ministry, which was really powerful in the sense of that. Um, I, I was baptized in Jesus' name, and I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit um, and had a metaphysical, supernatural experiences um, with, you know, really powerful, really powerful um, encounter with God. And so that was great. Um, the doctrines of the, like the oneness Pentecostal churches are, their, their theology is flawed. Even though there's some aspects of it that are that are good, um, the main issue is Christology. So um, I spent a couple of years after college just really focusing on and studying the scriptures. Like that was, uh, I came into the Unitarian understanding through doing that. Um, and you know, there's there's difficult scriptures that you need to like come to terms with like if it doesn't mean this then what does it mean and i went through that process of saying oh yeah yeah all these scriptures that people read read into their theology they, there is an alternative way to interpret those those difficult ambiguous vague passages that that seem to imply one thing but actually don't necessarily imply that 
And then there's these other scriptures that are explicit. You know, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And Jesus prayed to the Father, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. So, like, there's this, you know, there's all these, like, you, Trinitarians would say John, you know, the, the, the Gospel of John, like, they draw so much from the Gospel of John by interpreting the ambiguous statements that Jesus made in a way that fits their theology. But, like, the Gospel of John is one of the most Unitarian uh, works in the New Testament. There's all sorts of verses in, in John where Jesus ex clearly differentiates himself from God. He, he said, if, if I honor myself, my, you know, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's the Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. You know, things like that, which are, are extremely explicit. But what Trinitarians do is they, they look at sort of some of the vaguer passages, and but like I've come to the full realization that that all these passages that they use as proof texts are really like there's nothing there to um, to to substantiate their their theology, and so they end up having to go to the vague Old Testament pack, passages. You know these um, these um, you know passages. To, to, to draw the conclusion from the Old Testament because they it, it, there's not any you know there's not enough in the New Testament and then it becomes a game of conflating words and titles that were given to God in the Old Testament with those that are given to to Jesus now in the New Testament but like you have to look at the context and what those titles mean and, and but they try to obscure the the distinctions and just kind of conflate the two and so um but my conviction after studying everything carefully is that uh, the New Testament is clearly Unitarian. The Old Testament is clearly Unitarian. Um, and if, if Christianity didn't fall from its roots, didn't stray from its roots, that Christianity bar, by and large should be Unitarian. It's just this Neoplatonic influence in the early church where, you know, every, you know, it, that, through a few centuries they had they had to you know the motivation was to infirm that in an ontological sense jesus is is a is god and in order to do that you have to say that well god is multiple persons and then that that violates god's um god's oneness right <clears throat> so Oof, it looks like a bunch yeah. of people just jumped in and everything Folks, this is kind of an interview where I'm just asking my buddy questions and uh, promoting some of his websites and uh, YouTube channel and all that. This isn't really a get-together. However, on, a, uh, on Friday, 7 p.m., everybody is welcome to come in and chat. I enjoy hearing people of all different views. Yeah, and However, uh, going that route. All right, so I, I got one last question for you. We'll wrap it up, and we're probably going to do more parts in the future, if that's cool with you, where we talk about more in-depth things about the Bible, where you're coming from, and all that. I enjoyed myself in this. My question for you is this. The world is about to end. You're in front of the world on international cameras to be heard. You have five minutes to say a message that you feel is important or beneficial to mankind before all of existence is wiped out. What would that message be? 
uh, to repent, <laughs> repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, death itself does not have victory over us, even though this world may perish in a catastrophic mass extinction. There may be a, a nuclear winter or something like that. Like that's not the end of our hope that we, we have the hope of something greater. We have the hope of a, a place in God's kingdom where we don't, it doesn't suffer the corruption that's in this world. And so like believe, believe in the gospel um, and just believe with all your heart. Um, Jesus is the Christ, that he died for your sins, that in the same way he was raised from the dead, you will also be raised imperishable, and that you'll be in God's presence for eternity. That, that That's your hope. There's nothing that comes close to that. And of course, if the world's going to, is eminently going to be destroyed, <laughs> why wouldn't you believe Um. But you should believe anyway, even even though the, the destruction of this world isn't imminent, because there's nothing in this world that can come close to what the gospel, the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel can sustain you through any hell, starva you know, starvation and suffering, and, and it, it transcends life itself in this life. Like even, even being killed, like you have victory over death, so... Um, I would just um, preach the gospel as, as well as I, I was able to within those five minutes <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and put things in perspective that like you think you're going to die. You're not, you know, it's not over. You, you can live, you can live forever. Like whoever believeth in the, you know, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life those who do, do not believe are condemned already but those you know who do believe are not condemned and so let's believe let's there's <laughs> what else are you going to do with this last five minutes everything else is futile there's there's no, you know nothing else comes close even if even if you're not completely convinced you should just try to believe with every ounce of um, faith that you can muster up to believe. Well, ladies and gentlemen, make sure you check out the links in the description. We have a link to his Discord. We have a link to his YouTube channel and uh, a link to his website. Make sure you check it out. It's all good material. Subscribe to him. He is uh, building up some foundations right now, and uh, sooner or later, he will get to uh, get in our video. If anybody ever runs into him, be respectful, have integrity yourself. There is no need to argue and aggravate because, you know what? The world could end at any time, and you don't want to waste your last five minutes crying like a baby in some kind of live broadcast, especially with Brett Keen paying attention. <laughs> all right, ladies and gentlemen, I hope that you all have a wonderful day, and thanks for joining me in this.